left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing. Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining Clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. You really should know who's running the ship because you know people out there celebrate getting the deal, which is fine. But the real work starts once you have the deal under you know under contract and, and close on it. For me, that's the fun part. Like extracting massive value out of a deal, yeah, you really gotta know who's leading the charge. And if the company is strictly focused on doing deal after deal after deal, probably their focus is not on asset management and they're gonna be hurting when the tie changes, which, which it has. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. 
I'm excited today to have Gary Lipsky with us. He is a multifamily syndicator who's done over $250 million in real estate transactions. He is president of Break of Day Capital. He's the host of the Real Estate Investor Podcast, and he's a best-selling author of the book Best in Class. Gary, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Jim, happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you. I've been looking forward to this. Um, the first thing I'd like to kind of start is, is with your journey. How did you get into real estate? How did you become an operator in multifamily? And just kind of tell us how you got to where you are today. So uh, I bought my first house for my family, 2002. I just had a kid and, and you know, I was looking for the right neighborhood. I had no money to put down. Uh, I was in debt and and so how to find a house that, you know, wasn't necessarily the nicest, but, you know, in the path of progress. And we, we bought this house. We converted the garage to an office space. So I was able to get, collect rent. We opened up the kitchen. It was, it was a value add play. And I didn't realize how that would have such an impact in my future. And uh, eventually, um, I bought a single family rental. Um, I, we moved from one house to another and we turned that into a single family, uh, rental. I was looking at some small properties, but eventually I, I sold a business at the end of 2016 and got into real estate full time and, and partnered with some other people. And we took down uh, a 42 unit in Tucson for $1.65 billion. And I, I, I should have bought the whole block at that price, you know. <laughs> um, but it was our, our first foray and, uh, into, into the business. And, um, I applied my, my business skills. I've been an entrepreneur my, my whole life. Um, my previous business, we ran outdoor education after school programs and leadership development. We worked with, uh, 9,000 students daily at 90 schools throughout Southern California. So, each school was like its own multifamily property to me because I had an on-site staff. We had to add value every single day. And so it was, you know, the same skills I'm applying to real estate. I know it's a, a little bit different, but, you know, managing people, managing projects, executing on our business plan um, to maximize value. So back to the beginning when you, you kind of started with the single family rental it sounds like you, you guys moved and kept the old house as a rental which is that's how I got into it I, I did it on accident um, you might have done it more intentionally and then you said you, you sold that business and then the next thing was you went out and bought a 42 two unit apartment so was there any real estate in between there were you continually buying single family I guess the question is how did you know hey I want to go buy large or I mean 42 units is large for a guy who's been doing single family, but how did you decide, hey, this is where we want to go. Let's do multifamily and let's do larger projects. So when I, when I sold that business, really the first year was, was um, looking at all the different options in real estate, you know, because you, you get the squirrel factor, you know, that looks good. This looks good. That looks good. So um, I had to narrow my focus. So I, I started investing in other people's uh, deals. And so that kind of gave me an insight of what to do right and what to do wrong. I mean, I, I wish there was a left field at, at that point, you know, to help guide me, you know, because I was kind of going at it bl blindly and I invested I with people that, you know, had a social media presence, had a meetup, but they didn't really understand operating. And, and after we sold that deal or, I, or he sold that deal, he admitted that to me and was like, 
you know, he just became a capital raiser because he, he's not an operator. So, uh, I learned a lot of things al- along the way, but, you know, I found multifamily and then I honed in on that and really studied and, you know, underwrote, you know, a ton of deals where, you know, I'd look at properties, you know, from, you know, early in the morning till, till late at night. And it just gave me those reps to feel comfortable and, and partnering with others to go after our first deal. So, there was a, a couple of years in there where we were kind of getting our feet wet, kind of gaining experience, and then we're able to feel comfortable to to put in our own money and to bring on investors' capital as well. Okay, and so that first deal then you did as a as a syndication, you had investors. So where did you find those investors on your first deal? I'm always curious. You know, when you just start out, you you know you probably have to go to friends and family to start. Is that is that what you did? Absolutely. And there's, there's a bit of imposter syndrome, you know, like I've never done this before at this level. I'm taking money. So I, I was, um, quite honestly nervous about going to people and really developing my emails, my newsletters, which I should have developed many, many months before telling people what I'm doing. But, you know, so I, I, I raised from like three people, raised a tiny amount. But we, all we had to do was raise a million between the three of us. But it gave us, you know, confidence to, to work together and we got the deal done. And our underwriting was ridiculously conservative. Um, and we were able to 2x that deal in under two years. Wow. Wow. That's great. And then since then, have you done larger properties or are you, are you, are you focusing on, a, on the medium like 46 to 100 or are you going, going larger now? So soon after that, maybe um, four months later, we took down a, a deal that was over $15 million. It was 128 units in Phoenix. So that was a big jump. But, uh, you know, we partnered with a few more people and we took that deal down. And um, that one was, again, 2x in under two years, um, buying it at the right time at the right property. But at that point, then we had this big lull because COVID hit. And, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of price discovery that we, we've been having, you know, the last year or so. So we didn't buy another deal for, uh, almost 12 months after that. And then we started getting on our, on a, on a regular cycle, but, uh, you know, buying, um, probably about four deals each year, the last couple, couple of years. Okay. And you, you know, we've, we've talked before and you're, you're one of the only people that I hear talking about asset management, right? Mostly it's, Hey, you're the operator, you're the, you're the syndicator, you're a capital raiser, whatever that person is. And then there's a property manager, but you know, the asset manager is key. And, and when I was a active investor, I didn't realize that I was the asset manager, right? I thought that the property manager just handled everything for me. And that's why we always butted heads. And that's why I, I was really bad at being a, an active investor. And that's why I do passive now. And when I look at an operator, I'm thinking of them as they're going to be the asset manager. They're going to manage that asset. So can you talk to us, what is the difference between an asset manager and all these other guys, operator, syndicator, GP, capital raiser? What, yeah, sometimes they're the same person, sometimes they're not. But you, can you just talk about what's an asset manager and what's the difference between an asset manager and those other roles? Yeah, absolutely. So an asset manager really executes on the business plan and they and they hold the the property management team accountable. The property management team has 30, 40, hundreds of properties. They punch in, they punch out. They there's there's no skin in the game for them really. Um so 
the asset manager has to, to motivate the team, has to get ownership thinking, um, has to go through all the financials on a regular, you know, on a, on a monthly basis and have those weekly property calls. And so many other operators don't um, allocate the uh, enough time and money to asset manage a deal. And that's, that's a huge difference um, in value that you can create because if you can, if you can have, you know, a regular deal, maybe 90% occupied and you're not having all the, the income lines, but a well-managed property, you can execute on your business plan much faster. So that's why we're able to, to um, exit uh, three of our properties within two years at a, at a massive return because we've executed on our business plan, because we held the team accountable, because we had the KPIs laid out nice and simple for them. And, and, and we would secret shop the property. We would drop in on the property unannounced. We don't always say, Hey, we're coming by, get everything nice and ready. It's all these little things setting up the right uh, expectations from the very beginning with our property management team. And they know like we're going to be a handful. We're going to be, you know, they're going to talk to us a lot more than they talk to their other operators because we're, we're going to be hands on. Now we respect their input. I mean, they're the experts on the ground. You know, they're in that um, submarket every single day. So I, I want to hear their expertise and I value that. But we're going to hold them accountable to what we want to achieve. And we're going to stay on top of them, preferably not micromanage them. We're going to give them room to to operate, but they better hit our numbers. And and this way, we've been we've been able to extract a ton more value out of all of our deals than your 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 typical operator. Now, is it is it an assigned role? Like it? So again, you get kind of confused with the terms operator, syndicator, all that. So it's the operator. It's the one that is actually operating the deal. They could also be the GP and the and the capital raiser, but. Is there like one person that's assigned and say, "Hey, you are the asset manager." I see in the in the fees there's an asset management fee, and yeah. that's about the only discussion you have on it. Oh, there's a fee. Okay, off we go. Right. But we don't really understand what do they do and who is that person. And so I guess the the question is, is it one person or is it a team? And and how does it all kind of come together? Yeah. So when we started out, uh, I had a business partner, and so we both kind of asset manage it. Um, you know, I mean, he would have some properties that he would be the key person on. I would be, uh, the key person on other properties. Then when I, I, I developed my own team, I have a person assigned to that task. Now I oversee, uh, a lot of the calls and, and, and all the paperwork as well. It's always good to have two eyes on something, but, but he's the lead in making sure, uh, everything is performing on a, on a, on a, on a weekly basis. He's the one evaluating all the KPIs. So on my team, I have someone specifically assigned to that. Some, you know, the institutional buyers, uh, they'll, they'll have that. But, um, a lot of the other syndicators, they should have someone on their team. They, they may not. It might be, like you said, it might be the operator slash syndicator. I've seen deals with, with so many co-GPs on a deal. They're, they, they might, uh, break it up on one person's uh, on construction, one person's on, uh, renovation, one person's on something else and they split up all the tasks. I, I don't think that's a great way to go because I want my property manager and regional manager to have like one point of contact and not hear voices from all different places. Now, anyone that's a partner with me can be on those calls and feed information through that one, through my asset manager. 
but we, we want to have one point of contact for that. And, uh, one person leading the charge that to me, that's the best practice. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense. And having someone who's designated as asset manager just really focuses, right? Because their only job, I presume, is focus on the business plan and execute, right? Where if you have all these other jobs that you're doing and that's one of your jobs, you might not focus on it as much. Is that how you've you found it to, to be where there's one person, you give them that title and then they know their job and so the job gets done? Absolutely. And Asset management is is harder than ever, not because uh, the loan combinants are so much stricter. You've really got to know, you know, if there's earnouts, if there's penalties, you really got to know your loan combinants. Reporting is a lot more time consuming than it used to be. So it, there's a lot of work involved in asset management. So you've got to make sure you allocate, you know, the, the resources to that so that you can perform um, at a high level. And, and when you don't, you get into these issues where you haven't executed on your business plan. You're now, you're, you, maybe you have to do a cash call, a capital call. Um, and, and you're, you're behind on your business plan and you're going to be really hurting on that right now. So you mentioned property management, right? One of the big jobs of the asset manager is to oversee property management. And I can see how that would work. Well, either way, but if if you have if you're hiring out a third party property manager, then it's pretty clear. I'm the asset manager. You're the third party property manager. You report to me. I tell you what to do. A lot of companies over the last few years have converted to where they have all of their property management in house. How does that or does that change the role of the asset manager? And could it be in a situation where someone just says, "Well, since you're the PM and you're internal, now you're the asset manager too"? And if so, are there downsides to that? Yeah, you know, um, I get asked that question a lot if I would be, if I want to do in house and I don't, I want to be more nimble. I want, you know, we, we hire a company that all they do is, is in, our, in our Tucson market, all they do is Tucson. They've been there for 35 years. They have, they have, um, all the vendor contacts. I can rely on them for their expertise. For me, that's a whole nother business and it's an HR nightmare. I don't want to have that. So if you have it internally, yeah, you, you, you may not have an asset manager. Uh, and if you don't, then yes, you're, you're just dealing with the, with your, your property manager, maybe your, your regional, but it's, it's good having that kind of, um, third party, which is that asset manager to, to kind of, again, hold that, hold that property manager accountable and hold that regional, uh, accountable because they've got many other properties, you know, they're, they're, they're employees, not, you know, they don't have that same ownership thinking. And so having someone that's, their job is to maximize NOI and to execute on that business plan is, is, is really important, whether you have uh, in-house property management or third party. And I want to get into a little bit on how an LP, a limited partner, the investor should look at all of this. So the first part of that is, as an LP, should I be asking someone whether they have property management in-house or not? Should I say, hey, who specifically is your asset manager on this deal? And should they be part of my interview process when I'm looking at a new operator? Yeah, I think those are those are great questions. I don't think an investor has ever asked me that before, you know? So yeah, you, you really should know who's 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 running the ship because you know, people out there celebrate, you know, getting the deal, um, which is fine. But the real work starts once you have the deal under, you know, under contract and, and you close on it. For me, that's the fun part. Like 
extracting massive value out of a deal. And um, yeah, you really got to know who who's who's leading the charge. And if the company is strictly focused on doing deal after deal after deal, probably their focus is not on asset management. And uh, and they're going to be hurting when 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 the tie changes, which which it has. Yeah, which is exactly what happened, right? There are a lot of companies out there, and I've invested with some of them who essentially were apartment flippers. And that's okay if you understand the business plan. And you're right, they weren't really focusing on the asset other than to make it pretty to sell to somebody else, which is is great if you're just in it to make money, but it doesn't. it's not sustainable until something happens like it just did. So that's a really great point. Um, as far as the LPs again, what questions should we ask a sponsor in order or an operator I'm using those interchangeably in order to determine if they are a good asset manager right we want to make sure that we have questions that say hey you know that they can kind of suss it out like are are you kind of just going along with it or are you critically you know looking at asset management management and making it a, a critical part of your evaluation yeah, I would ask, you know, what what that asset management does on a day-to-day basis, how many properties do they asset manage, you know, cuz if they're if they're doing maybe more than 10, maybe that's 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 too much. What kind of KPIs are you looking at? You know, maybe they could share their dashboard. Um I I think that's important. How often are you talking to your property management company? Now, the, you know, the first six months, they should be talking to their property management company on a weekly basis. Um, I still like those weekly basis, even after we performed on the deal. We just moved one property that we've owned almost 30 months to, to buy weekly. But I even said I'd prefer to have that weekly, but there's just, you know, we have a couple of minutes, you know, like we've already executed, we're refinancing the property, but just having that zoom, that five minutes interaction, um, certainly it's going to be longer for a newer property because you have more to do. It just, you get a lot of information there. Um, so that's important. I, I would also ask how often that asset management visits the property. Um, because I know a lot of other operators out there, they, you know, that visit their properties once a, every six months, every, every nine months, which is, is way too long. You need to have eyes on the property. You need to have. To build that relationship with the with the team to m- m- let them know that you care about the property and you're going to drop in at any moment and they need to be they need to manage that way not to scare them you you actually want to catch them doing something good but they need to know that this property better be operating to its best at all times hi this is zach captainstall ceo and co-founder of rise 48 equity At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, Schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, The Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends 
and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. And what can the LP do? You know, this is this is the most difficult part as an LP, right? You do all the research, you do all the due diligence, then you send in your money, and now you got nothing, right? You can't do a thing except read a report or uh, hopefully collect some distribution. So during the hold period, what can the LP do to keep up with the asset manager to know what's going on with the property aside from the reports they get? Because again, we're making a little distinction between the asset manager and maybe the investor relations person, right? So is there anything that that you recommend people do? Talk to the asset manager during the hold or if there's capital calls, is the asset manager the person you want to talk to? You're always, you know, you're usually given to the IR person. So should you dig deeper, I guess, is the question. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, so what we like to do is is have a, uh, a semi-annual call to kind of go over all of our properties. Um, so the whole team is there. People, we can ask, answer questions. We talk about the good and the bad. I mean, never, you know, n- um, nothing ever goes perfectly. So you do have, to, you know, bumps in the road that you have to discuss. Um, so hopefully, um, you know, if you're an LP and you're investing in other people's deals that, they're having those, those opportunities to talk to the team and ask questions. Um, the, the newsletters are providing all the information. It's important that they should have the actuals, uh, versus the, the budgeted to the pro forma. And so I know the budgets may change at, over time, but we keep to our pro forma so that investors know, Hey, we, you know, we're beating it. We're behind. And, um, and, it, and, and if, if, you know, what's causing the variation. It's never like a perfect straight up arrow. I mean, there, most months we beat our performance, but there's some months that we're behind. And so we just have to communicate what's going on. And so hopefully, um, whoever you're investing with is sharing all that information. And, uh, you know, I, I hear from other investors that when things get rough, that's when, you know, the communication starts lagging. And then, and that's the opposite of what you should be doing. You should be doubling down on your communication. Um, but yeah, unfortunately there's not a whole lot that an LP can do, but hopefully, you know, when, when they're, uh, investigating, uh, a potential operator to invest, uh, to, to invest with their communication is, is getting back, you know, right away without, without too many delays and fully answering the questions. And if they do that, I think that's a, a pretty good sign of how they're going to communicate down the road. But if it's taking a long time, if they're not answering certain things or blowing certain things off, then maybe that's not the type of company that you should be investing with. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense to me. So I want to shift a little bit. Um, we've been talking mostly about asset management, but you know, you, you have been, and I think maybe you still are focusing on value add. Um, with the multifamily, can you talk about, because that means something different to each person, it seems, and it certainly has changed um, over the last couple of years. So can you talk about what value add means to you and and how you look at it when you're evaluating a deal, whether you want to um, go ahead and, and make an offer on that deal? Yeah, so um, we have a, a deal right now under contract, and we looked at their water bill and realized it was more than twice as much uh, than what we're paying on our other similar size properties. And so, you know, are there leaks? What's going on there? So we actually saw a picture of like 
their uh, toilet that was three and a half gallons. And so we know it wasn't low flow. So then the question was, do they have low flow uh, on other units? And they didn't. So we know that um, we can install um, aerators on faucets and shower heads and low flow toilets and save $138,000 on this property at, at a minimum. And when you divide it by the cap rate, that's almost $3 million of value that we can create day one. So that's one thing. Two, uh, I want to, uh, the look of the property. So um, we'll address landscaping. Typically, you know, you own a property three, five years, your your landscaping isn't going to keep up. Maybe your painting isn't going to keep up. And that adds a lot of value. And I, I know it doesn't, you know, you can't say, oh, it's going to increase the rents, but it actually does. By having a really nice look to the property, um, particularly from, you know, from the road, stuff like that adds a, a lot of value. Um, adding amenities that don't cost a lot of money. Maybe we've done uh, pergolas a lot of times on our property over the barbecue grills. Uh, that's a low cost um, amenity that adds a lot of value. Package lockers, um, dog parks. Uh, so things like that can add, uh, can add a lot. Um, also on this new property under contract that we have, they have patios on the first level, but there's no privacy wall. So we can add a privacy wall and charge $50 a unit. So 128 units times $50 times 12 months. That's a, that's a lot of value that we can create. Um, preferred parking too that we can institute. So, um, you know, that we could pick out a couple of different spots throughout the property and, and add $20, uh, cost to that so that someone could park very close to their apartment. Now that's everyone's not going to do that, but, but some people are going to do that. And again, that's adding more income lines. Um, maybe they have an extra, person on staff uh, that they shouldn't have. Now, I'm not trying to weaken the team, but sometimes they just have too many people sitting around that we can lose a person and save, you know, $50,000. So there's a lot of different levers that we look at. We can't do everything all at once. So we have to, you know, move a few levers. Once that's done, move another few levers. And we're constantly tweaking and evaluating the property to add value. Uh, We've also done two adaptive reuse projects that uh, we bought student housing during COVID. Uh, it was at uh, 52% occupied. We converted it to market rate, uh, multifamily. By the summer, we were over 90% occupied. So that property, we've owned a little over two years. We're refinancing it out. Our investors have had cash flow and they'll get 100% of their money back uh, because we've added, uh, you know, we've doubled the value of that property and we'll just sell at a more opportune time. And then we also bought a garden office space in Phoenix. Um, we got 44 units out of the, out of the existing build and we're adding 60 new units and we'll be done with that project, uh, in a few months. So again, it's kind of a needle in the haystack. We saw a ton of value in this deal. Um, and the lender's like, why are you buying this at 1.9 million? It's been sitting on the market for 12 months. And we're like, because we can convert it to multifamily. And, and our basis is going to be, you know, tremendous and extract millions and millions of dollars of value by converting it. So can you talk more about adaptive reuse and how you find those and what, what it, what exactly is it? And then how you find them, because those seem to be like, you can really extract value there, right? The value add there is huge because you're changing what it is from one thing to something else. And it really is just all about your vision, right? Yeah. Um, so that student housing deal, that was pretty simple to, to, to do. 
I, we were under a, a time frame. They wanted us to close within 45 days. So I need to make sure all the boxes checked before we, you know, our money went hard and then we knew that we can raise the money. And so we jumped on with a bunch of different lawyers and, and the city of Tucson to get that approved. Um, but the other project, again, we, we immediately we reached out to the city and they were super cooperative. Uh, you know, they wanted this rundown office space converted because it means a lot more tax money to them. So they quickly worked us through the system to get, uh, to get those approvals. Um, this was a, 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 a more of a simple project. I have friends that are doing these massive buildings that are historic and they're getting, um, grant money. They're getting all these different tax incentives to get them um, to where they need to be within the cap stack. We, we didn't have to do that for, for that project, but um, a lot of them are really hard to pencil. I mean, we looked at a lot of hotels to conversions, and, and obviously the rooms are, are small, and so you either have to add two rooms together or get like a, a, a suite uh, to make it work. Um, you know, it's, we're not putting a ton of our resources into that. Um, we want, uh, more, I guess, doubles, you know, so the, the two products that we picked were, were easier for us to handle. We're not taking on massive adaptive reuse projects, but you're seeing in New York City, there, there, there's grant money for those for the, um, for office space. And I assume more cities will, will do that as well. Probably San Francisco, they're going to need to do something like that to convert these massive apartment buildings or, or raise them and convert to uh, multifamily or retail or, or whatever it is. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and you mentioned several times uh, that you're in the Tucson market and, you know, everybody's in Phoenix, Houston, Dallas. And it always intrigues me when I find somebody who's in a market that not very many, you know, in our community, our syndicators, you know, the people that we know, not many people are in Tucson. So, what what's different about Tucson? Why are you in Tucson, and and what what makes it a, a place that uh, LP should want to uh, invest in? It's funny. So the first time uh, I was looking at the demographics and I drove through it, I was not impressed at all. Um, but we bought our first deal, and I and I and the more time I spent in there, I I realized how much value there was to be had because we bought this our first property. The owner probably hadn't visited there in years. It needed drastically needed paint. Um, they had the wrong phone number on the wall uh, for, for property management. It was just so poorly run. Um, we, we raised rents like 50% and everyone stayed. I was shocked. Um, and that seemed to be the case on a lot of these other properties. It's, it's over a million MSA, a really diverse uh, job market, good steady population growth, good rent growth, and one of the lowest cost of living cities in the States. Uh, and uh, it's very business friendly, so very landlord friendly. So if someone's not paying, um, we could quickly get them out. And so those are the factors that I really liked about the city. I think a, a lot of owners like to visit Scottsdale and Phoenix, but they don't come to Tucson. So we're getting um, properties where we can add a ton of value um, because they just don't know where the rents are and um, and fall asleep at the will. Now, certainly they've made a lot of money, but when I buy it from them, I'm able to extract a ton of money as well in a very short period of time. 
Are there other markets like that? I mean, maybe you don't want to say it out loud because everybody <laughs> else will jump in there. But, you know, the, I, I really am always intrigued when someone finds something like like this. You know, I think Birmingham and some of those Alabama cities were, were like this for a while. But now there's a lot more people there. Same with some of the, you know, Arkansas and, and, and some of those places. So are there other markets like this that you're looking at? And how do you find them? How did you find Tucson? Yeah. So um, first, my focus was on Phoenix, to to be honest with you. Um, and this was before the massive growth. You know, th- we're talking like 2017, 2018. Um, but the, but they are hard to find. You have to spend a lot of time in that market and and really understanding it, talking to brokers on a consistent basis, because we we stumbled into it. It wasn't like okay, I was focused on Tucson. Uh, in the very beginning, but I'm, I'm thankful that, that I did stumble upon it, but we're looking in concentric circles. So, um, we're looking in, in Vegas, which is more like a Phoenix, Albuquerque, which I guess is more like a, a Tucson. Um, but we, you know, we're not, we don't do the shotgun approach. We want to be in a, in a small radius, uh, that we can visit on a consistent basis. Our underwriting might be different than Tucson compared to Phoenix. Now, Tucson, Phoenix is going to have, um, more delinquency, more vacancy right now. Um, so I think there's opportunity everywhere. It just all depends on, on how you underwrite. But yeah, finding those, those markets that people sleep on. I know, I mean, the, the Midwest has been hot of late because people were falling asleep on it and putting all their investments into Florida and Texas. And eventually, um, the rents were, there was, they were paying catch up in the Midwest. And there was a lot less competition. Now, I think things will, those are hot markets right now. And then maybe it goes back to, you know, the South, Southeast and Texas, but, uh, there's ebbs and flows. And, and, um, I think being a market expertise will always, um, have you ahead of the game versus taking a shotgun approach and looking at too many markets. Just, just pick a few, develop those strong broker relationships. And consistently execute in those markets, and you'll do you'll do fine. You'll really minimize your risk. Yeah, and especially if you can find some markets that aren't as crowded as is the Phoenix, Dallas, you know, F- Florida market. So uh, that makes complete sense to me. So the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you like to listen to? And um, you cannot use Real Estate Investor Podcast. That is your podcast, and we'll put that in the show notes for sure. But what, what's another podcast you like to listen to? So Walker and Dunlap has a podcast uh, on a weekly basis, and it's really good. They have Peter Linneman. Um, they have a lot of economists. They have a wide range of people that is really valuable. So I can look at, you know, different angles, business people that have done, you know, tremendously well. So I, I like the broad range of topics and uh, just really, really insightful. Yeah, I, I listened to that one. I forget where I, I heard about that one, but that he, it, it's excellent. Really great guests, and they really kind of dig into it. So that's an excellent recommendation. Thank you very much. Um, if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about Break of Day Capital, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, go to our website, breakofdaycapital.com. You can uh, get our social media links. You can get on our newsletter. You can see what deals we're offering. So that has, that has a, a LP uh, resources as well. So uh, how to vet a sponsor, how to track all of your investments. So a lot of good free resources on the website. Excellent. We'll put all that in the show notes. And Gary, this has been fantastic. We appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I, I love the podcast. Thank you. Accredited investors, listen up. 
Are you looking to invest in a time-tested asset class with an experienced operator? Then GSP REI is here for you. GSP REI is a vertically integrated real estate investment company specializing in single-family affordable and workforce rental housing. Through their in-house construction and property management, GSP REI has been able to consistently generate high yields for their investors. Whether you're looking for predictable monthly income or long-term growth, GSP REI has fund offerings to fit your passive investing needs. To learn more about GSP REI and explore their fund offerings, visit their website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. Some really good stuff there with Gary. Appreciate him being on the show. You know, as I said, he is, he's really the only person I hear talking specifically about asset management. And I think that's that's a big deal. I know other people, other operators, they do asset manage, obviously. Obviously, that's the whole deal. But he really has a singular focus on that. And I think... I think it probably makes a difference and it just means that there's more specific focus on making sure the property managers doing their job, making sure they're working with the banks, making sure all of this stuff, you know, it's like herding cats probably being the asset manager, but it's a really important job and I like the focus of it. Gary mentioned, you know, one of the ways that he learned some things about how to be an effective syndicator is he invested in other deals as an LP and that gave him great insight. So that's one of the things I always like to hear from an operator is that they invest in other people's deals. And that's for multiple reasons, but one of them is because then I know that they're seeing what other people are doing and they're either, you know, they're probably seeing some stuff that they really don't like. And so they make changes maybe in their own program. And then they see stuff that they really do like and they take that and, and enact it. So I think it's really powerful and important to have um, operators who are investing in other people's deals. I think it was really smart of Gary to use that as a, as a learning experience. And, and back to the asset manager, you know, he talks about what does the asset manager do? They execute the business plan. They manage the PM. Well, if you have a business plan and you don't have anybody that is totally focused on executing it, or as Gary said, you split it up into multiple people, then you're gonna lose focus and not be as efficient. And so it seems like concentrating on that one thing, who's gonna execute the business plan, it makes you keep going back to that business plan that hopefully the operator spent so much time putting together to make sure that they would achieve their goals. Well, if you don't go back and look at it, guess what? You're not going to remember what's in it. You're not going to um, achieve that. And then he talked about adaptive reuse. And I really like that. It's where you take an asset, like he said, student housing, and you turn it into a multifamily. And what it does is it's, it's a mismatch in price sometimes, where if somebody's trying to sell something as a... Um, as a student housing, it's gonna be priced differently and everyone's gonna to react to it differently than if they're thinking about it as a multifamily property. And so if you find something that maybe no one's buying it as a 
student rental because the economics don't make sense. Maybe you can buy it for cheaper and turn it into a multifamily and you already have some built-in equity from that conversion. Now it's a heavier lift on the value add, so you gotta make sure you have all your procedures in place. But it's really interesting and we see that in the motel to apartment conversions for sure. And uh, self-storage, also you see it when they're taking these big Kmart boxes like Nomad is and, and um, converting them to, um, to self-storage. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Adaptive reuse is something um, I think especially with you know so much need for affordable housing that this is gonna be a, a wave of the future. So um, I think that's that's really interesting. And again, it does have it does have a, a, a big upside. And then the last thing we talked about was you know Tucson as a market. And it, I really I'm always interested when somebody is outside of where everybody else is going. Some of these tertiary markets, smaller markets maybe. But if you get in there, you can really make a difference and make some money because nobody else is really focusing there. And you're dealing as as Gary talked about with all these guys who own the business for 20 years so they've extracted all the value out of it that they're they're going to get so they don't mind selling it to you where you're going to go ahead and, and double the value in the short time because they've already gotten all the value out of it and they don't want to do that heavy lift i know that because that was me on one of the smaller multifamilies i owned i knew i could make a bunch of money but i didn't have the energy i'd already made my money on it so i sold it to a buddy he doubled the value in a year and we both came out with huge smiles. So that's why I like hearing people that are in uh, markets like Tucson or some of these, he mentioned Albuquerque. I don't know anything about Albuquerque, but that would interest me because I don't know a whole lot of other people going in. There's still a lot of due diligence to do on the operator in the market. Don't just jump in because it's a new market you've never heard of or never been to, but it's just interesting to me when we find someone that has that. So great talking to Gary. We appreciate him and we'll be watching him as, uh, as we move forward. That's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.